Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. First, the usual housekeeping. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud or whatever app you listen to the podcast on. And you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Also, if you like what we do, then please do head along to iTunes and give us a review and tell all your friends about it. Now, after 41 days... 30 witnesses, two snowstorms, one Six Nations and a Grand Slam. And three hours and 40 minutes of deliberations, the accused were acquitted on all counts. So begins an excellent in-depth report by Irish Times journalist Conor Gallagher in today's paper, detailing the rape trial in Court 12 at Laganside in Belfast, which has dominated headlines for the last nine weeks. In the dock, Irish rugby internationals Paddy Jackson and Stuart Olding accused of the rape of a 19-year-old Belfast student and their friends Blaine McElroy accused of exposing his genitals and Rory Harrison accused of perverting the course of justice and withholding information. Yesterday afternoon, all four were cleared of the charges. In the aftermath of those unanimous verdicts by the jury of eight men and three women, the issue of sexual consent is being discussed on the airways, online and around dinner tables across the island. The case raises many other issues and in a bid to make sense of some of them, I'm joined by Conor Gallagher, fresh off the train from Belfast. Later on, you'll hear from Nolene Blackwell, CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, who has spoken about the law around sexual offences in this country on the podcast before. But first... Connor, fresh off the train and from that magnificent piece inside the court, which left very few stones unturned. But tell us, we'll start with yesterday. What happened yesterday? Um, OK, well, I suppose to start from the start, the jury resumed deliberations after being out for about two hours the previous day. Um, so they resumed deliberations at about 10 o'clock. Um, um, no one was expecting a verdict. Everyone was kind of settling in for the long haul. Everyone was, all the journalists were getting their, you know, their their pieces ready for afterwards. The lawyers were sitting around chatting. The accused were were, were sitting around chatting. Um, the woman was, what was wasn't in that, that area. She was in a different room. Um, she she left and entered towards a, a, a side door, and would watch the proceedings daily from that room uh, on CCTV. Um, the uh, but then at half twelve, notice Paddy Jackson walking briskly back to the courtroom and saying the word verdict to someone. I, I ran back in and everyone ran back in and the seats filled up instantly. There's a hundred seat public gallery there and they filled up instantly and people were still trying to come in and get seats. But then they locked the door so no one else could get in. So it added, added kind of a ominous tone to proceedings. Judge Patricia Smith comes out and says um, we have unanimous verdicts. And, you know, the fact that it had only been three and a half hours and it was unanimous verdicts. I think everyone guessed correctly that it was not 
guilty verdicts. But she addressed in the public gallery, basically, she said if she doesn't want to see any outburst, that this is going to be a, an incredibly difficult time for the jury, jury foreperson and that people should respect that. And if there was any outburst, she would kick them out, basically. She'd clear the court. And so everyone was, for the most part, on their best behaviour. The jury came out. The registrar asked them the questions. How do you find Paddy Jackson on count one not guilty? Count two not guilty? Stuart Olding, Rory Harrison... Blaine McRoy, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And then that was it. Uh, there was some muffled cries from the men's family, kind of cries of joy. The men kind of slapped each other on the back. Did they slap each other on the back? Yeah, yeah it, was, it was kind of, like, not slapping each other on the back, but kind of half a hug nearly, you know. And then the judge said, addressing them, you're free to go. Uh, it, it was strange, actually. Three of them were free to go. McRoy, Jackson and um, Harrison were free to go. There was this weird technicality. There was still an outstanding charge of uh, vaginal rape against Stuart Olding, which the prosecution had elected to not uh, present any evidence in, basically meaning they were dropping the charge. But the jury actually had to technically find him not guilty of that charge. So that charge was read out to the jury and they were directed to find him not guilty. So the jury, four, 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 four persons just there and then wrote not guilty on the issue paper and then he was free to go. And then the judge reserved the final words for the jury, you know, thanking them for the time and commitment, especially one juror who went above and beyond. And I, I think that's a reference to a juror who had a cruise booked and had to postpone it. And she said this is probably the most difficult trial a jury has had to sit on uh, in Northern Ireland, which is obviously a, a very strong statement considering some of the trials that, that have gone on up there. Because you were describing that courtroom was for used for entirely different purposes in, in other times. Yeah, well, of course, it's their biggest courtroom. You know, it's, yeah. it'd be like court, uh, court number one down in the four courts, you know, in the olden days, you know, where all the big murders would be. So, I mean, that's seen it all, but it would have seen a lot of paramilitary stuff and, and I think I mentioned some of the kind of security trappings that we wouldn't necessarily have down south they're not very obvious but you know you, you can kind of notice them if you're there for a while like The defendants were were, were, were frisked for, for arms and that sort of thing Yeah they were, they, were, they were the quick search every morning yes. you know uh, um, just like it's a matter of procedure I imagine yeah. it happens for everyone um, but you know that wouldn't happen down here for defendants on bail uh, for example that was it the jury went away they were excused for further service for life Olding went and joined the other lads there was a lot of hugging um, a lot of shaking of hands uh, there was a few tears well there was a lot of tears was there a lot of tears from the fellows the, the, from, the, from the from the family members mostly uh, Paddy Jackson had a few tears in his eyes certainly and then everyone relocated outside and it was kind of chaos at that stage because we knew Jackson was going to say some words outside we knew his solicitor was going to say some words outside Joe McVeigh the PPS their, their version of the the Director of Public Prosecutions was going to have a press conference, the police were going to have a press conference, and then everyone else had their own uh, things that they wanted to say about their trial. So <laughs> it was quite chaotic, but we, we all gathered outside, first of all, for Jackson, and it's that picture in the front of the paper today of hi him saying a, a few words outside, uh, Joe McVeigh beside him. Very strong statement from Joe McVeigh and from Paddy Jackson. In term, well, Quite an angry statement. Yeah, actually. it was an angry statement. Yes. He gave out about the woman, you know, said, you know, inconsistencies throughout the case, gave out about the police. He said Paddy Jackson was targeted because he was a celebrity, basically, like targeted by the prosecution because he was a celebrity. Some of the harshest words were for, for social media, uh, and he probably had a point there. I mean, social media has been a, a cesspit during this trial. And, and Joe McVeigh's statement really contrasted a lot with Paddy, or uh, Stuart Olding's yes. statement. He released a very short statement 
while saying he was innocent of any crime, he apologised to the woman. He sounded quite penitent, didn't he? Yeah, there was there was a penitent tone. Was it an actual apology? Yeah, it was. He, he said, um, I want to acknowledge that the complainant came to court and gave evidence about her perception of these events. And he said, I'm sorry for the hurt that was caused to the complainant. It was never my intention to cause any upset to anyone that night. And he left it there. He didn't go into, you know, social media or his career or anything like that. It was a surprising tone. It contrasted so strongly with with the others, I suppose. Yeah, well, it was you know, uh, uh, McVeigh came out uh, swinging, you know, basically, and an olding solicitor, I should add, it was olding solicitor, yes. just read this very brief statement on, yeah. on, on his behalf, and it was it was relatively contrite. And Connor, there was never any suggestion that 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 um, the woman, the woman's representatives, might make a statement. Well, no, the woman uh, had made arrangements that she would speak through the PSNI. So the PSNI had a press conference shortly afterwards in a hotel across the road and um, it was um, Detective Constable's Superintendent uh, Paula Hillman and uh, she basically said the um, complainant is very upset and, and, and sad about the verdict. You know, during the trial she said, she alluded to, she doesn't. she's glad she came forward and she said it was the best thing she ever did because, you know, she felt the duty to protect other people and, and that sort of thing. And one journalist asked, is that still her, or does she regret coming forward now? And uh, the detective just said no, she, you know, as in she still doesn't have any regrets about coming forward. And yet, Connor, um, one of the words I heard yesterday morning when, when the jury returned so quickly was the word humiliating that they took so little time to reach that verdict. Yeah, I mean, you can never get inside a jury's head and, and we're kind of limited in what we can say because of the, the legal argument restrictions, but the verdict took everyone by surprise. That It was so short. It was three hours and 40 minutes. Um, you know, that's an incredibly short period of time for, for an eight-week trial. Uh, and I think people are kind of saying, which is even if they had their minds made up, they would probably take couple of days to sleep on it or whatever because they just asked questions and they got their answers and the verdict came back quite soon after that. We can't go into the questions. but No, this is the problem Yeah, you, because that's usually very revealing. Mm, I mean, be, yeah. very often when you're writing after a trial, you can see where the, the, where the game changers happened or where the different sides were putting their emphasis for the sake of the case. And in this case, you can't even report on this. Yeah, I, I tell you why that is or why I think it is that the it's obviously a very high-pressure trial. Social media was going mental for the entirety of the trial. Um, like, we'd, <laughs> we'd be having our lunch and people would be tweeting at us, why aren't you tweeting? Why have you stopped tweeting? And, you know, it's like, well, I'm having a sandwich. Um, and I actually stopped tweeting halfway through the trial just because I, I just felt it wasn't a, a good a good way of doing it, you know? Or I stopped tweeting a lot. So... The judge was under a lot of pressure. She was really conscious of it, you know, and I suppose she put these restrictions in place because she knows it would be fuel to the fire. Obviously, I don't agree with those restrictions and, and the media are, are fighting them. Mm-hmm. And we have a, a date for April 25th set um, when, when they'll be making a full application, I think. Connie, you were saying that, that, that we, the time taken was very short to reach the verdict, mm. but the verdict itself, was that surprising to you and your colleagues? Mm. No. It wasn't. I suppose, you know, you're there every day and you're listening to the evidence and you're listening. You you can kind of sense the room as well to a certain extent. I don't overstate that, but it's just... Personally, I never felt it was going to be a, a conviction. Um, and that's not 
passing any judgment on who I believed or didn't believe. I just didn't get the feeling that there there there, there would be convictions. Um, I try. I, I towards the end, I actually just stopped thinking about it because I was just driving myself mad trying to, you know, see what way the jury could go on this charge and that charge. Um, you know, I thought a hung jury was was a possibility. You know, which would have been an awful result. Everyone would have had to come back and do it all again and. Would have served nobody, you know. But no, I mean, I I wasn't surprised by the verdict. I was surprised by how quickly it came, though. And in terms of the of of the pivotal moments, Connor, do you recall a couple of times where you thought, "Oh my, that's a game changer," you know? Yeah. So Dara Florence was going to be a big witness. Everyone was waiting for her. You know, we knew what she was going to say because it had been alluded to by other other people. But then yeah, she came in, she took the stance, very glamorous woman. You know, the, the photographers were all trying to get these shots of her. And she said, she was a guest at the party, she went upstairs looking for a friend, opened the door and saw the woman in between the two men. And she said very definitively, what I saw was a threesome, it was not rape. Um, but it was a double-edged sword, you know, mm-hmm. because if they remember, Paddy Jackson denied vaginal rape um, and only said that there was consensual oral sex uh, with, with the woman. And she said 100% certain that she saw Paddy Jackson having sex with the woman. But, you know, but she also said she never didn't actually see his penis. So the jury would, would have had to take that into account as well. So that was a big moment in the trial. Connor, there are a few confusing things. I mean, actually, confusing is a word that you, I think we all heard a lot about in relation yeah. to this trial. Everybody was confused about something. But in terms of, of uh, the complainant's presence in the court whether or not her anonymity could be preserved in any meaningful way. If, yeah. When people, unlike the South, people were allowed wandering in and out, members of the public apparently, yeah, yeah. could wander in and out and see her on a monitor. Yeah, it kind of makes a mockery of, the, you know, she's entitled to lifelong anonymity and the penalties for breaching that are pretty severe, like jail time, you know. But anyone can walk in and out of the court. Um, they could sit there, they could see her face and they could hear her name, you know, over and over again. They could hear all the personal details about her life. So that anonymity was kind of made a mockery of. And it wasn't long at all before her name was being shared on social media. And indeed, you would have seen the police saying yesterday they're going to they're gonna go after these people. And, you know, I checked this morning and there is still some references to her name on social media. And, you know, you could say, well, the press are allowed in. You know, how is that any better? And I was like, well, the press have a, from a selfish point of view, if they did it, their careers would be over, you know. But um, And it'd be very obvious who did it. But, uh, you know, if it's any Tom, Dick and Harry can go into court to, to a rape trial and then tweet out under their pseudonym, you know, this is her name. There's there's little recourse for that, you know, and I'm not even sure how the police are going to be able to track a lot of these people down. Because it's very different in the South. Yes. Everybody yeah. remains anonymous. Yes, until conviction. And the public are not allowed in. Yes. Which I would think, Connor, makes a lot more sense to you, yeah. having seen the contrasting situations. I've written a lot over the years about, you know, problems in our, our, our system in terms of sex crime. But I have to say, I'm, by contrast, we're not doing too bad, you know. Like there are some things that they do up there that we don't that we should we should be looking into. Their, their provision for vulnerable witnesses is quite good in the way the police deal with them and um, through these ABE interviews, these achieving better evidence interviews, and it's a whole procedure where the interviews are videotaped, especially trained police officers, and we do have some of that. And, and more is being brought in, but and there's even provision that uh, if it's a particularly vulnerable witness, the video can be played to the court rather than the witness appearing in court. So a video of their evidence can be played. Now, that, that is being used here, or it's only started being used for child witnesses, uh, very young uh, 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 victims. Up north, they seem to be a good bit further down the road on that. 
she gave evidence in person. I'm not sure why. Maybe she elected to or not. But they do have a lot of provisions there. But, you know, one of the most important things is that, you know, her anonymity isn't really protected that much at all. No, it's extraordinary that, that, that I, I, I'm still startled at the idea of members of the public being able to wander in and out of a rape trial yeah. and then being able to see her face and hear her details. The other thing that I think that absolutely gobsmacked some of us down here was the sight of people like Rory Best appearing in the middle of it with a view to giving um, character evidence. How does that work? Character witnesses are allowed in Northern Ireland during, during trials. Like down here, there's no rule against it, but it wouldn't be allowed. The judge would say there's no probative value in this and whether they committed this particular crime. But up there, it's allowed. And the judge has, you know, the jury are told very specific things about what weight they should put on character character evidence. They said that people of good character are, 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 are maybe less likely to commit crime, which is a very strong statement to tell a jury just before they go out to deliberate. And, you know, they said they heard this evidence of good character from, in the case of Jackson, his former teammate uh, from Ulster, his sister in, or his brother's partner and a family friend. But um, not from Rory Best. No, Rory Best uh, never gave evidence. Mm. So Rory Best and uh, Ruan Pinar, who used to play for Ulster too, and uh, a woman, an MMA fighter called uh, Leah McCourt. We're, we're, we're on the list. The jury were told they may hear from them as character witnesses. But in the end, none of them appeared. Even though that was their their apparent reason for being in court. Well, that was what Rory Best said. He said that yes. he'd been instructed to appear or he'd been instructed to come to, to, to take a look, basically, and see what it was all about because he'd been asked to appear as a character witness. Now, we don't know it if It almost sounded like he'd been, he'd been subpoenaed into attending court. Yeah, he hadn't been. The judge said... The judge told the jury specifically he was ordered to be here, and that was the response to the media furore over his appearance. It was a it was a bit to kind of calm that down, and so it was agreed that you tell the jury he was instructed by counsel to to be here, and and that's true. He was uh, instructed by counsel, but he wasn't subpoenaed. I mean, he could have said no, um, mm. but you know, he didn't actually give evidence, so we don't know why he didn't give evidence. Connor, when the evidence from the the text messages was 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 brought in, was there an audible gasp in court, or were people no? Because we'd heard bits and pieces of them before. Uh, Toby Hedward for the prosecution gave a fairly um, lengthy opening speech. Uh, and he would have highlighted some of the more um, eye-opening text messages during that speech. Now, we did hear lots of new ones, but uh, they were all being read out incredibly fast. Um, and there was a drill going off because they were refurbishing the court down below. So actually, <laughs> it was difficult to hear them. So no, not really, but they kind of taken together. They, uh, they did cause a lot of shock and a huge amount of commentary on social media as well. That was one of the days that was particularly that people went crazy you know um were you shocked by it the text uh was i well i kind of heard about it you know i'd already heard them in in toby Hedward's speech some of them i was shocked about like the uh, the one from blaine McRoy with his picture with the picture of the three three women uh, and the caption love belfast sluts and the other one um saying pumped a girl with jacko last night and another one on tuesday roasted her I, I kind of found them quite pathetic. Yeah, I, I, I didn't feel sorry for him, but I was kind of cringing for him, you know? Yeah, it was a bit like men wanting to impress one another rather than... That's exactly what it was. And, yes. that's, what, and that's what they said it was as well. They were yes. taking each other on. And Blaine wanted to be the big man who was having sex with you know all these girls that 
Paddy was having sex with you. Paddy's very much the leader of the, 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 the four, you know. They all clearly looked up to him. Um, and, you know, you did get the sense that they were trying to, try to impress because, you know, McRoy sent that text to other people, you know, outside the group, you know. Um, so it wasn't kept within the, within the famous WhatsApp group? It, 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 Jacquemy, no, no, it was... Uh, I mean, a large amount of it was in that, and Harrison wasn't a member of Jacquemy, Um you know, but most of the texts were between him and uh, Blaine. Connor, a final question and one that I suppose is, is probably the most important one from the women's podcast point of view. Mm. The treatment of the complainant. Mm-hmm. And many of us feel, of course, that we wouldn't encourage anyone now to take uh, a complaint after that. I mean, we hear that she was on the she was on the stand for what eight days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, eight days. She yeah. gave not, not 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 eight full days though. No, that's important. Yeah. How, how how many hours in total was oh, she? Oh, I couldn't tell you how many hours in total, but there was some half days in there. You know, there was a lot of breaks. Um, so I suppose just to be completely fair, you know, it wasn't nine to five every day. It was half ten to four or half ten to one some of the days. You know, um, and and with breaks you know, 10, 10, 20 minute breaks in between it. Just just to, to be totally fair, you know, it, it wasn't quite as gruelling as maybe people think, although it definitely was very gruelling. Now, in the, in, the, in the printed word, Connor, she sounded very confident. Mm. Uh, she knew exactly what she wanted to say. She was well able for those top lawyers. Uh, is that how it seemed to you? Yeah, she was a really, really confident witness. She spoke in complete sentences, well-formed thoughts, um, she was very impressive in the witness box, and I don't want that to sound like I'm passing a judgment on whether she was what she was not. saying was true either way. But she, as a witness, she was very confident and very, um, very, very impressive. Generally speaking, yeah. And after her time in the in the the witness box, uh, having been cross examined at length by four sets of lawyers. Um, she then was given a room of her own from which to yeah. to, to watch the proceedings on on. Um, on CCTV. Yeah, kind of like a green room. It's a room where witnesses wait, I think, before they, they're, they're called into court. And so was, once she had done her, 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 her job, she was able to come in and out of the court without being, without being obstructed or exactly, seen or photographed yeah. no or any one, of those no things. No one saw her for the rest of the trial. No one saw her. she was there her. every day and you, could, you knew she was there because you hear the phone line dialing into the room yeah. every morning. So, you know, that was a strange reminder she was still in the building, but kind of disembodied, you know. The last paragraph, Connor, in your piece, your magisterial piece, <laughs> was about as as though there was hugging and crying going on at the front of the court. Yeah. This young woman slipped out the, the side. Yeah. Um, was she seen or was she, did she get away without anybody seeing her at all? Well, I, I you know, I, I, I didn't see her, but I... Uh, had sources who told me, you know, that you know what way she came in and out, and, uh, and you know, away. I had no interest in in kind of no uh, <laughs> bothering bothering her, you know. No. And of course, there was enough to be doing on the other side of the court. But yeah, she uh, she did. She came in. She came out of the same entrance she's been using throughout the trial, and kind of slipped away quietly. Conor Gallagher, thank you very much for coming to us straight from the train and from those many weeks of very very hard and difficult work. Um, your pieces are all well worth reading, but I would particularly commend the piece Inside Court 12. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks again. I'm joined now by Nolene Blackwell, CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Nolene, there are quite emotional scenes going on outside. 
Yes. There are several rallies going on around the country, as I understand it. I've just come from the rally that was outside the spire in O'Connell Street. And it really was quite emotional to be there with so many people who were so upset and concerned and angry, but also determined um, that this can't continue. And the this that they're talking about is the sense in which they had the sense that sexual violence isn't taken seriously, um, that rape isn't taken seriously and that and that uh, people, not just women, but people are not being protected. The trouble with this type of crime is that for the most part, it all comes down to the evidence given by the two people involved. The person who makes the complaint, which ends up in court, and the person who is accused of the crime. And very often nobody knows apart from the two of them. In this case, actually, there were three people accused of sexual crimes. We'll we'll leave Rory Harrison and his withholding evidence out of it. But there were three people accused. So and and they were friends. So so the trouble with these cases when they go when when you report them the first trouble with them is that uh, you have to report them to the police who have to go through a process and very many cases will not survive that process at all because the evidence isn't strong enough and sometimes because the police aren't doing the investigation correctly either although that's starting to change down here, but not fast enough. And then the director of public prosecutions has to decide, is it likely to to be winnable if it goes to court? And other cases won't pass that threshold of evidence either. And eventually somebody ends up in court. I just looked at the 2016 court figures and there were 400 odd rape charges brought against a number of individuals. So one person might be charged with a number of, on a number of counts, but say 400 charges. There were 70% convictions and 30% acquittals. So there, so two out of every three uh, were, um, were found guilty. That's some a better of, average than we, than, than we were led to expect. Well, yeah. Now, some of them pleaded guilty. But they went to court and then they pleaded guilty. So they would never have pleaded guilty if they hadn't gone through the process, you know, and got the evidence and the rest of it. So this is the kind of thing we have to bear in mind right now. I, I, I am a solicitor for decades. And I have to say, since I went in to work with the Rape Crisis Centre two years ago, I definitely would be less flippant about telling anyone to report because it's an awful hard thing to do and to go through. But nonetheless, I would say to people as well, two out of three of the charges resulted in convictions in 2016. Now, we don't have enough statistics by a long shot, but that is that is a fact that's in the court records. That is something. It is also something that a number of people who carried out rape were put away and given prison sentences, because now it's almost unheard of not to get a prison sentence if you're convicted of rape. So so in those cases where people feel for their own self-worth, for their own sense of justice and rightness that they have to complain, I'm hoping that we will be able to do something better for them in the justice system. But for the moment, people will still uh, feel that sense that they must report it because for their own sense of justice or to stop it happening to some to somebody else. Which is also a very compelling reason. Yeah. Now, Nolan, just to straighten things out, we've just had Conor Gallagher in talk to him about his, he was reporting from the court case in Belfast. And 
just the contrasting jurisdictions. Yes. I think one of the things that 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 has has taken people by surprise first of all was the fact that the the four defendants were identified straight away. Yes. The second thing that struck me as quite startling was that the public could wander in and out of that case in yes. Belfast and see this woman on screen hear all her details. Yes. Members of the public, you know, yes. when down here, people aren't even allowed, no one's allowed into a rape trial. Absolutely right. So it made a nonsense of her anonymity, really, that because, OK, her name wasn't put out by the broadcast media, but it was being mentioned in court the whole time and the public could go in. And of course, they would uh, look it up when they, so when they in clear, court. That doesn't happen That down does here. not happen. Here it is. A tra- rape and uh, aggravated sexual assault cases must be held in private without the public present. Now, that's not true of all sexual offences, and it should be. But at least in rape and aggravated sexual assault, the trial must be in private. And nobody can broadcast or publish anything which would tend to reveal the identity of either the complainant or the accused in the course of the trial. The The accused person, if they're convicted, may be named after the trial is over, but in some cases won't be if it would identify the victim as well. So it's that bit is quite different. In many, many other ways, there isn't much difference between what they have north of the border and what we have south of the border. The same thing happens that the prosecution brings the case on behalf of the state. The complainant is only seen as one witness amongst many that the prosecution must not coach or be seen to tamper with their evidence in any way uh, and and is unrepresented for the most part in cases. But aren't there exceptions to that? There are. So if the accused starts to talk about the complainant's sexual experience with somebody else, then a person is entitled to their own legal representation for that part of the trial. And one of the things in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre we're concluding at the end of this is that we knew it before and we've asked for it before that uh, the complainant should also be properly represented by her own team, her or his own team of lawyers in a case like this because the case isn't, is all about what happened and who do you believe? And the defendants, as it stands, have legal teams to help them put forward their evidence in the best way and to test the evidence of the complainant. But the complainant, often in court for the first time ever in a situation like this, has not only doesn't have her own legal team, the complainant isn't even allowed to know what the whole case is. They're not even given the full book of evidence. They're only given their own witness statement because they're just a witness and because it's not seen as about them. But that has to change. Is there a perfect model anywhere, Nolene? Well, no, perfect, probably not. But better models are easily available. So if, for instance, uh, if you look to Germany or to Spain, in both of those cases, they have variations on, uh, on a model whereby the prosecution and the complainant bring the case jointly. So, so the, the person who makes the complaint is an equal partner with the state in the prosecution of the case. That gives the victim in sexual violence cases a lot more authority, a lot more control over something which affects her or his life hugely. So that's a model whereby you would have 
pretty well the same system, but that the the victim would be better resourced and would be bringing the case as if it was um, as if it was say a family law case, a divorce case, or something like that. So they'd be bringing that. That's one thing you could do. But other things you can do to make a better system is at the investigation stage of these cases. Really, it is a bit of a scandal that everyone knows for about five or six years that these cases should be investigated by specialist police who are trained to understand how to collect evidence from someone who's traumatised and how to collect evidence in a very sensitive area. Actually, the police investigation north of the border seems to have been done by people who were specialised in the area. And here, it can happen if you're very lucky and if you have... Uh, if if you happen if the crime happens to you in the right place, you will get specialized police. But out of the twenty eight guard the divisions, there's only four divisions that have a small team of these specialized police. So that's another thing you would do. And then in court, you would have better protection for your vulnerable. You'd you'd collect the evidence in a better way. So, for instance, one of the things that uh, is being looked at at the moment is why you can't have an inquiry which collects the evidence rather than the he said, she said way that we do it 20 months later. There are systems being mainly working with children now, but even older children. So you're talking young people, you know, uh, uh, when they're 16 and 17, where where the investigation happens by a trained interviewer and where the prosecution, the defence, anyone else who has an interest in the case is able to see and hear the evidence being collected. They know it's being collected. They can direct questions by the interviewer. And, and once, the, once the interviews by that trained interviewer are over, the person may never have to give evidence again. That evidence is just brought into court and has already been tested in a in a more um, in in a in a more neutral setting and in a way that doesn't make the victim fearful because we don't still really believe in in our legal system we don't really believe in the trauma of rape as a reality as as a real harm that has been done to someone if someone is in a wheelchair we'll get a ramp to take them up steps but we do not account for the trauma which accompanies uh, the sexual violence because as you have said before Nolene it's kind of treated as a car theft isn't it Exactly the same. So it's treated the same as any other type of crime. But sexual violence, domestic violence, intimate violence, which is so intimate, it affects your body, it affects your psyche, it affects your emotions. These are the the courts. The courts don't know how to deal with them. And for the most part, lawyers hate dealing with these as well. I mean, they're, they're the ones who, who deal with it all of the time and who know perfectly how to deal with it. But it's a messy business. It's too slow for the courts. It, they, like their, they like their facts neatly packaged. They like people to behave in a linear way, you know. So this happened and then that happened and then the other happened. With sexual violence, with rape, that's not the way it happens often and it's certainly not the way people remember who have been victims of trauma. You have, if we want really to give justice to the victims of sexual violence, if we want people to report these harms and we want convictions, we have to adjust the thinking of our legal people. 
And is there any chance of that happening sooner rather than later? Yes, I, I think there is. I think the very fact that we're talking about it now, uh, that this is going out. Um, uh, again, I was at a, an event, a banter event last night, and there were, there were lawyers there as well who themselves were saying, look, un- until you fix these three or four things, uh, it, it won't be right. But, but the, the lawyers are there. The lawyers are seeing it themselves. Um, the, the lawyers are, tra- well, partly we are all, we've all been trained up to absolutely understand the rights of the accused. But now lawyers are starting to see, or you're getting people who are just coming in new who are saying this is outrageous. And we have the other great thing, which is a new piece of legislation called uh, the Victims of Crime Act, based on the Victims Directive, which states this extraordinary thing that victims have the right not to be re-traumatised in the court system. So lawyers now not only should, but will have to take account of the position of victims. So, Nolene, on the whole, even after this ghastly circus we've all witnessed, um, here in the South, we have reason to be mildly optimistic. Yes, we do. Uh, we, We do if we move fairly quickly on this. But, you know, there are people who today maybe feel they won't report because of what they have seen, which is an awful pity if they feel they want to and should report. Um, And and we'll work with them and, you know, do whatever we can. But um, we we have... We have facilities here that if we if we put them in place quickly, we definitely could make a better structure than is there right now. I think we should repeat again, Nolene, that the publicity attached to that trial in the north does not happen down here. Does not happen. It is forbidden by law. I mean, the legislation is clear. The trial must be held in private and neither the complainant nor the accused can be named while the trial is going on. And two thirds of the cases that make it to the DPP's office actually end in convictions. Yeah, that make it into court. Yeah, that make it into court. Yeah, and, and ended in convictions in 2016. It's two thirds of the charges. So I'm not sure, you know, so you could have uh, just to be really clear, but two two thirds of the charges w- resulted in convictions. They weren't all separate cases. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's a slightly better picture than I expected. Yes. And I think hopefully we have we have sort of reassured people yes. that the system is different here. Yes. That they are not going to be looked at and written about in the same way as the as, as as that unfortunate complainant in the north was. And even in the north, like where trials are open, it was the it was the high profile of the defendants which caused it because you wouldn't have you know, our, you, Connor wouldn't have been going up north if there hadn't been an interest in it because of high profile Irish rugby players, you know. So that was all part of it as well. And uh, and that is definitely, we have a more civilised system down here from that point of view. But it is still quite the hard thing for people to do. And you have to salute every single person who has gone through the trauma of sexual violence and who is prepared to go through the rigour of the justice system in order to hold those who carry out those offences to account. And we salute them. In particular, we salute them today. Nolene Blackwell, thank you so much for coming into the Women's Podcast. Thank you, Cathy. And that's it for today. My thanks to our guests, Nolene Blackwell and Conor Gallagher. Today's podcast was produced by Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hold up. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.